In a recent decision, the Merit Systems Protection Board confirmed that people are covered by the Whistleblower Protection Act, even if they blew the whistle before even applying for a federal job. The board disagreed with the federal court, but upheld the board's own precedent. For the significance of this case, we turn to attorneys Christine Kumar and Jim Eisenman of the Alden Law Group. Good to have you both with us. Good to be with you, Tom. Good to be here, Tom. Thanks. And this case, well, there's a couple of cases that it revolved around, but what is the significance? In other words, if I blow the whistle, in one case, someone from a contractor blew the whistle on the government and then applied to work for the government, and it turned out that that person was protected per the Merit Systems Protection Board. And so what does this all mean? How do you interpret this? Right. The significance of it, it's important, but I think there are some qualifications to that importance. The Whistleblower Protection Act protects people who make what are called protected disclosures. And the question in this case was whether this person, this appellant, qualified in terms of making a protected disclosure because at the time they made that disclosure, which was about fraud, they were not either an employee of the government or an applicant to uh, be an employee with the government. They were a contractor. And when you look at the actual statutory language of the Whistleblower Protection Act it, in terms of making protective disclosures, it does say someone should be a, an employee or applicant. But the board here agreed with its own prior precedent, disagreed with federal courts' non-precedential opinions, finding that that was not actually required. So what it means is those people who are not employees and not applicants for jobs with the government can make protected disclosures. Now, how often that's going to happen, I'm not quite sure, because how often is someone who's not an applicant, not an employee, going to know enough to even blow the whistle? Here, this person's a contractor working with federal uh, in a federal entity, so they're going to know more. Right. The idea here was this person blew the whistle on the Army from the contractor standpoint and then applied for a job at the government, was denied, and saw that as a retaliatory type of whistleblower retaliation, basically. Well, Christine, what if someone, I mean, this is probably a hypothetical, but this would also apply if, suppose that person blew the whistle on their own company as a contractor, then applied to the government. They would still be protected under this system? So I don't know if they would be protected under the WPA, but I think they would have protections under the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, which specifically protects employees of contractors from that very situation. Right. So they could blow the, I mean, their own company could commit retaliation, but then it wouldn't really be the government's matter in that case, at least in terms of the Merit Systems Protection Board. Correct. Got it. And suppose, I mean, this is really stretching it, but suppose they blew their whistle on a company that was not a contractor and then a year later applied to join the government and someone in the government said, well, you're, you're kind of a troublemaker when you work for Staples or I'm just making up a company. We don't think it fit here. It does have to deal, the, the, the whistleblowing does have to deal with the government and the government's good name. So blowing the whistle on a private entity, and at least in terms of the Whistleblower Protection Act. So as blowing the whistle on a private entity really wouldn't implicate uh, the government and wouldn't really fall in that era, that protection. And actually, there's a decision in the last year from the MSPB on that. 
other issue. I can't recall the exact name of it right now, but there's a decision saying that. So blowing the whistle on, you know, if I was a government employee and I said, you know, Staples is, you know, committing fraud, it's not going to, I'm not going to be protected by the WPA. Right. So there is some level of connection in these precedents between the government and the person applying and the company that they were blowing the whistle on or from which they blew the whistle. Got it. We're speaking with Jim Eisenman and Christine Kumar, attorneys with the Alden Law Group. And by the way, what is your observation of the pace of what's been coming out of the MSPB now that we're one year on from its having a quorum? They're down by one again, but at least they still have the two. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's been it's almost exactly a year from when the quorum was restored with uh, at least two board members, member Levitt who just left, and Limon. Uh, I think the pace is good. The board has said, you know, they had, I think at the peak, an inventory, as they refer to it, an inherited inventory of 3,800 petitions for review. They normally only deal with 600 in a, in a given year. So they've been focusing on the 75% oldest, or 75% of the cases that, that are going to issue will be the oldest cases. But I think the pace is good. They've issued about 55 precedential opinions in that time and about, I think, 1,200, give or take, non-precedential opinions. But I think they're, they're moving along pretty quickly. I think the good thing, there wasn't a good thing generally about having no quorum, but the good thing is that the office that writes, drafts the opinions for the board members, they were continuing to work this whole time. Sure. So uh, there are... Lots of opinions in in the wing waiting for uh, the board members to review. And Ms. Kumar, would you say that the fact that the bulk of cases, 90 plus percent of the backlog that they're dealing with is non-precedential and there's about 55 percent that are, I mean 55, I think maybe the number's up to 75 that are precedential. Those are almost like the blueberries buried in a big mass of oatmeal, that that's testimony to the basic quality that the administrative judges work does for MSPB? I think that's correct. We learned today from Kathy Harris at our panel that to determine how a case is classified as precedential, it comes from their appeals counsel who drafts the briefs for them. And they look at what people are confused about and what people still need clarity on. And so, yeah, I think it speaks to the fact that administrative judges are doing a good job of clarifying legal precedent and the law such that they're not having as many precedential decisions. Plus, the board, in the greater sense than even the individual cases, is starting to issue summaries and advisories. And I think they just came out with a new handbook, if you will, of prohibited personnel practices, which updates prior volumes. And there's some some that are particularly popular in terms of what people do to other people that's wrong. And so I guess that looks like they're back in business too, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think that, that so they've issued, I think, two studies or reports, as they call them, since the quorum was restored. And the, this one you're referring to, the one on prohibited personnel practices, PPPs, was just issued. And I think the, you know, in terms of the, the quality of the decisions, I know the, the administrative judge decisions, they certainly look at, when you look at their annual reports, they have all the pie charts about the, the decisions, what side they were on, how many cases were settled. And when you look at generally at those kind of pie charts, 
and the decisions that are made by the judges on the, on the merits of the case, typically about 85 percent uh, of those are sustaining what the agency did. And that hasn't changed much over the years. Yeah. And uh, I've read quite a few of those reports over the years. And for legal readouts, if you will, they're surprisingly readable to the untrained legal eye. Well, they've been they've been doing that, and, and certainly when I was there, I was I was focused on trying to make sure that that was the case too. But they they've been doing that for years, and they will continue to do that. I think it's important to be able to understand it. So, getting back to the original question here on protection for pre-applicants, then anything else we need to know, Christine? Well, just that the relevant question the MSPB confirms with this case is about the timing of the personnel action versus the disclosure. So it does not matter when you make the disclosure, but rather what was your status when the retaliatory acts occurred. And I think that should bring a lot of relief for people who are worried about when they make their disclosures. And regardless, it still takes nerve to make a disclosure, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Put your life on hold, I guess, sometimes. Well, in the case of some of these backlog cases, maybe 10 years. Attorneys Christine Kumar and Jim Eisenman of the Alden Law Group, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Make the Federal Drive your precedent. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. 
I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or 
maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.